Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Uh, today, I'm excited because I have with me Shannon Renard Demko. Shannon is the director and senior coach at Management Leadership for Tomorrow, otherwise known as MLT, as well as the founder and mindfulness instructor at the Mindful MBA. I'm excited to have Shannon on with me today because I have a lot of friends who have gone through MLT over the years and they've had such wonderful things uh, to say about Shannon. So I'm excited to get to talk with her. And she has the experience as well as the insights from having worked with so many successful MBAs over the years, whether it's from helping them get prepared for the MBA to uh, perhaps advising them through the MBA to I'm sure providing mentorship and guidance even beyond that. And I'd love to talk to her a little bit about what she's seen and what she's heard over the years, as well as dig into a little bit of what she's doing with the Mindful MBA. So Shannon, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to, to meet and have you on. And I always love to start with a warm-up question. And so my warm-up question to you is, think back to when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? And maybe as a follow-up to that, any threads to how it relates to what you're doing now? Hi, Al. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. And I know it's going to be fun because that question made me laugh the minute you asked it. So a couple of things, depending on when you would have found me as a child, at a young age, I wanted to be a TV reporter, like the ones at the desk on the evening news kind of thing. So much so that actually I grew up in Southern New Jersey outside of Philadelphia and my parents took me in to do a tour of one of the Philadelphia TV stations. And I thought I was in like Disneyland or something. It was so amazing. And then once that kind of faded, then I, I'll admit to you and, and all of my new friends here listening that I was a cheerleader in junior high and in high school. So I thought I wanted to be a choreographer for a little while and that passed. <laughs> and then I thought I wanted to be a lawyer and that lasted all the way until college and passed as well. Even before I got to the LSAT, surprisingly, I think in the second part of your question, how does that relate to what I do now? I do think that, that there are actually pieces of me that show up in those goals and hopefully in the work that I do now. But when I think about how much time I spend presenting and storytelling and story writing and working with the MBA applicants that I work with, there's definitely that piece of the little girl that wanted to be the news reporter. Choreography. So as part of this other part of me, this mindful MBA part, I'm also a yoga instructor. I'm a 500 RYT Yoga Alliance certified yoga instructor. I teach yoga here in Atlanta and I also teach it online. I teach Zoom classes that lots of MLT fellows participate in, which is really fun. But there's some choreography there too. So I think sometimes this gets to some of the things we might talk about later in the conversation, but our intuition is always talking to us and pushing us towards the things that leverage our strengths and just bring us joy, even when we're little, but sometimes they, they show up later in slightly different form. I, I love that. Thank you for sharing that and for also walking us through a little bit of the trajectory of your childhood growing up. Those are uh, three unique uh, things and awesome in their own ways. It's but a kid is you think you can be all three of those things at the same time. <laughs> totally. And that's also why I love asking that question, because as I think we get older and we get more thoughtful and intentional about the choices that we make in our lives, sometimes it is nice to pay attention to a time in our lives when we weren't 
we we had the bliss of ignorance of just being uninhibited to think about the aspirations and and goals that we had and listen i'm all for being intentional and for being thoughtful but it's nice to balance the two of those because when you're a kid there's so much you don't know and in a lot of ways that is the beauty of it because uh, it just leaves you open to exploring and curiosity, which I think can be so great. So you told I was I always love to start with tell us about yourself, but you already told us a little bit about yourself. But I would love to know maybe just a little bit more. And then how did you get into kind of the MBA space in general? I know you've been working with MBA applicants and students and alum for a while, but how did you find your journey into this world? Yeah, that's such an interesting question to ask of anyone who does this kind of work because it's it's not something you can major in. <laughs> Even if you major in business, you're not majoring in MBA admissions or in mindfulness. Like I said, I went to college thinking I wanted to be a lawyer. I went to Georgetown in DC. I majored in government. Like I was doing all the things to point myself in that direction. And I had a real like moment, and I don't know what else to call it, but that at the end of my sophomore year where something inside me was just like, no. This is not it. These are not the classes. What do you really love? And I didn't have a real clear, crisp epiphany answer to that at the moment, but I knew I loved to read and I loved to write. So I changed my major to English, figuring I can still go to law school if I want to. Any Everybody needs to write and so on and so forth. And then I got my way all the way to senior year and was like, it's not law school either. What the heck is it? And so I delayed the inevitable by getting a master's degree in communication at the University of Pennsylvania at the Annenberg School and got really lucky when I got there because I realized I had the opportunity to do about half of my degree at the Wharton School. Like all of my electives, I did a few core classes there. And that was the beginning of my introduction. You can do business even if you're a word person, quote unquote, right? Only later in my life did I understand that I'm Oh, you can do numbers too, Shannon, right? That's probably a whole other podcast episode, the stories we tell ourselves about what we can do and what we can't. But um, but I went and did that and thought that I was going to go into like PR, uh, marketing, that, that sort of work, tried that out, spent a lot of time being like Goldilocks, trying on different things and being like, oh, this was totally going to be it. And it's not. And so I can really identify with the people I coach who are in that position and a lot of people going to and through the MBA have that experience. I thought it was going to be this and now it's not. Um, and I've been there many times. So I ended up going back to Georgetown and very briefly working in undergrad admissions. And that really opened my eyes to, oh, so like you can do things like this for a living. I had been a campus tour guide in undergrad and I didn't think of that as a career path, but that's what set me on the path. And then from there, I ended up transitioning over to a business school in DC um, at American University in a communications role because of my degree. Like I want to work and it just happened to be in a business school. And that was the beginning of everything. It was a small school. And even though I didn't work in admissions in order to help them, I would host, I would attend recruiting events and stand at the table and talk about the school. And you know, the rest is history from there. My career has been in graduate business admissions for over 20 years at this point, or nearly 20 years at this point. I went on to Emory University, where I became associate director of admissions at the Gazueta Business School. I oversaw international admissions for the full-time MBA programs there. Thanks to Emory, I've been to almost 50 countries, traveling and recruiting some multiple times over and over again. I have friends all over the world. World. And then I went from there, I went back to DC and became director of admissions at Americans Business School. And from there in 2013, I transitioned to MLT when I realized that I loved graduate business admissions and I wanted to spend more time 
in that first part of the interview, <laughs> when you're an admissions officer, the first part of the interview is where you get to say, tell me about yourself. I want to hear about your experiences. I want to hear about your goals. I want to talk with you about what you want to do in this MBA program. The second half is where you're, okay, but why this school? And you're selling them on the school and they're selling you on their fit at the school. And I was like, that's cool, but I like the first part. And so I was lucky enough to transition to MLT and become a coach. And since then I've found my way up into a leadership role at MLT over MBA prep. So that explains the MBA piece, at least. I'll stop talking for a second now. <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Just just to go a little bit deeper here, and I don't, I don't want to project, but so I went to Boston College for my undergrad, which is a brother or sister school of Georgetown uh -huh. in the sense of also being Catholic Jesuit. And one thing I'm, I'm noticing just as you're talking and also just knowing the history of and the pedagogy of, of the Jesuits in particular, is this a notion of reflection, intentionality and thought. And I think as I think about the roles that you've had and also just use yourself in relation to other people in this world. And so just as I think about the roles you've had and the fact you've done a couple stints at Georgetown, it seems like now, I'm just wondering, again, I don't want to self-project here, but I'm just wondering if those kinds of concepts fundamental to the pedagogy of being the Jesuits played a role at all into how you I don't know, think about the world or have made some of these decisions or even how you've chosen to define your vision or purpose through your career. That's a really interesting question, Al. It hasn't been something I've intentionally sought. However, I do think that there are aspects of the Jesuit set of philosophies that are really interesting. And one thing I can say, having grown up Catholic and now not being a practicing Catholic anymore, I think that I always appreciated their willingness to question everything. Yeah, I really appreciated that being in a an educational space where asking critical questions was expected. Yeah, and for a lot of people, that can really deepen their connection to whatever mm -hmm. you know faith is. I think any faith that goes untested is probably not as strong as it could be. Sure, right? and it allowed for that. It really taught me how to think, how to be an analytical thing in a very sort of critical yet open-minded way. And I'll also give a shout out to one of my professors who, his name was Father Scott Pilars. I have no idea where he is or where he went after, but for teaching me how to write, yeah. for teaching me how to get out of the, everything in my head is super important and needs to be on this paper space. He made us do everything in one page. So it was read this thing, write a critical summary of it. If it's more than one page, it's wrong. And as like a 20 year old or whatever, where you just value everything your mind produces so much, that was an overwhelming prospect. And by the end of that semester, I was like, got it. And all of this reading and writing, by the way, you can imagine, Al, how many essays I edit in the course. Sure. Yeah. I have to warn the people that I work with upfront, like you are here because you want me to edit your essay. So remember that I'm going to edit them. We're getting your resume onto one page. I, I brought a resume up this weekend from three pages to one. There you like, go. Then do this. But it life only makes sense in retrospect sometimes, right? I've sure. been preparing for this the whole time. I just had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to go out on a limb here. And because I've seen this done on a, another podcast that I really admire. But so the limb I'm going to go out here on is that there's a great podcast out there by Whitney Johnson. And anytime that someone comes on her podcast and talks about um, a person who made an impact in their life. She challenges that them to, at some point in the future, just to send them a note and just to say, hey, you, what you taught me meant a lot and made a difference in my life. So thank you.
And so I challenge you at some point in your life to, if you can find him, track him down and just send him a note just to say thank you. Because I, yeah, so do I. I figured I'd try it out. We'll see how it goes. But uh, I, having had some really great teachers in my life and actually having done this a few times myself, uh, I know how much that could mean to one of them. Absolutely. I love it as a coach. Like Exactly. Yeah. What you're doing, how's it going? Yeah. You know, compliment me or don't, doesn't matter. Just fill me in. Yeah, absolutely. So, so speaking about that, at this point, I presume you've advised and you've coached numerous MBA applicants uh, through the application as well as the onboarding process of school. And I would just love to know, just as you look back at that breadth of experience, what are the types of behaviors or actions that help these candidates really navigate the process to uh, a successful outcome? I knew this question was coming and still I'm like, there's so many things. The first word that came to my mind though was be open, be open. So you can't get into business school if you don't know why you're applying to business school or you don't at least have a story for why, right? No one's going to look inside your heart and decide if it was true. Ooh, we're getting some thunder. If you could hear that, fingers crossed that the, the power stays on. But um, you, so you need a story. You need to be able to say, this is why I want to go to business school. Not just the like the logistics of that, but the why of that is so much more compelling for someone to listen to, but also for you to talk about. So that, but that to me is almost pragmatic, even though it can get very deep and emotional at the same time, it doesn't work if you can't do this. But the people who have the most challenging experience, GMAT, GRE aside, We'll push that over there. But there are people who come in and say, I'm only going to be happy if I go to X school, right? Or a school in this state or whatever. And, and they come in and they start working with me. And that's what they say on like our first call. And then we do all this work where we start talking about what are you actually interested in? Okay, cool. This is what you want to do and why. And and we're peeling back layers and, and helping you to figure out like, wow, this is the kind of environment I learn best in. This is actually what I want. All this like clarity, personal clarity and potential transformation starts happening and they're still locked in. It has to be school X. And I'm like, but we've done all of this work and it actually turns out that school X isn't a great fit for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's in my head, it's where I have to go. Like that limited flexibility and limited openness because anyone who goes to business school will have the most success if they go to a school where they can be a star, right? Where you can go and dive all the way in, take full advantage of what the school has to offer. If you're in a community where you feel supported enough to make mistakes, to step out on a limb and potentially fail in front of everyone, but do it anyway because of the potential learning, right? You have to be in that space. And if you're not, then you're just playing not to lose the whole time you're there. And what's the point? So the people who are the most successful are the people who come in. So, and working with me is the year before school. So we're even before they come in and say, I'm here to figure out what's best for me. What's the right next step for me? Not to write out the next 10 years of my life by any means, but just to figure out what's the right next step for me here. Those are the people who are most successful because they carry that with them into school. And you remember this from being in school, Al, right? Like the people who come in and they're like, this is amazing. I'm pretty sure I want to go back into marketing, but I can't wait to talk to all these people who so, know so many different things than I do and potentially to broaden my horizons 
and learn about myself, those are the people who have the best time and the most success in the entire process. Thank you for sharing that. I, and I think you're spot on with a lot of what you brought to light. And I want to ask a follow-up, just maybe another, the other end of that question is the application process can, let's just say it, it is a journey and there's definitely some highs and lows for everyone that kind of goes through it. Would love to know, um, maybe from you, maybe outside of the GMAT, because that's its own, its oh, own yeah, beast, podcast. whole other podcast, maybe a whole other a- anthology of podcasts. Um, <laughs> But but outside of maybe the testing, what are some of the common roadblocks or challenges that that candidates really face or the things that time and time again, you see yourself really spending a lot of time working with candidates to overcome? Doubt. Yeah. Doubt. Lots of self-doubt, limiting beliefs about themselves and what they're capable of and whether they belong in certain spaces, regardless of how many spaces they've been able to get to already. And I think that applying to a top business school or a bunch of top business schools is everybody should don't just apply to one, but is scary for everyone, literally. And if you meet someone who's, I'm not worried about this, they might even believe themselves when they say that, but deep down in, in their gut somewhere they are. And that's okay. Like that sense of like fear is there because you care about this and it matters to you and you're not in control of the outcome. You hand all your stuff over and say, let me know what you think guys. to all these admissions committee members. And that's terrifying. It's extremely vulnerable. Right. And so everybody gets nervous, but encountering those internal blocks and not facing them is the biggest mistake you can make because then you take it with you. Sure. Sure. And so I think allowing those feelings to arise, acknowledging them and saying, wow, I am super nervous right now. I'm feeling super doubtful. I'm feeling really anxious actually enables that feeling to pass. And so this kind of treads a little more directly into the mindfulness space out, but, um, The emotions come into the human body for 90 seconds. So the actual physical emotions are physical and they pass through the body in 90 seconds. But when we decide to replay a story over and over again, the emotion persists. So if you think that you have been like straight up enraged at one of your friends for a week, it's because you keep renewing that rage. And every time it passes, then the thought comes back. Oh, I remember what they did to me now. And you replay the story. You re-up. You recommit to the anger, right? And we can do that with self-doubt as well, or we can see it and decide to tell ourselves a different story about it. And this happens to everyone. I'm telling you, I've worked with people who have incredible undergraduate degrees, incredible work experience on their resume, graduate degrees already in really impressive fields. And they're like, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, for sure. Yeah, of course. And so thank you for that. One of the things that I think is is something that I've learned to to realize over the years is that one of the hallmarks of critical thinking, right? The ability to hold two competing beliefs, right? And so to the point you made, feeling a little nervous or concerned is a, can be a good thing in many ways, right? If you didn't care, that would be a, if you didn't care as much about applying to a top MBA program, that would be a problem. But at the same time, you can also at the same time of feeling nervous or feeling a little bit of doubt can also feel a sense of pride or accomplishment in the sense that I'm even in a position to do this, or I'm very much thinking about my career and my success, and I'm taking action 
towards trying to you know get there you can both of those things can both be true at the same and it's hard listen it's easy easier said than done and so when i think one of the funny things or not funny things one of the things that i often see a couple episodes ago i had dr lisa orbe austin on and she has written an entire book on imposter syndrome and all of her work is on imposter syndrome and this kind of gets into the next question i want to talk about because even if you are able to navigate through the application process and get into the school of your dreams or a great school you show up to school and you're like, oh, crap, everyone around me is really smart. Everyone around me is this. Everyone around is that. Right. And that can feel very overwhelming again, or that can help make you go back to feeling smaller than you actually are or playing smaller than you actually are. And where it's going with this, getting into school is one thing. And that's a great thing. But then you got to show up. Right. And get into it and take advantage of it and, and things like that. And so I would love to know in the same vein of just from your experience, what are some of the either the mindsets or practices of those students who do show up and are able to navigate the experience successfully to achieve whatever goals they have for themselves? Yeah, I think it's the students who are there for their own growth. And I want to clarify that not to say they're very much there in community, right? They're very much there to collaborate, to make friends, to do all the you know, the things, but they're there to prioritize their own growth first, meaning that when the normal experiences of FOMO and watching other people seemingly, and I'll put that big capital letter, seemingly very confidently make their own choices, you start to doubt, let's say that the, the individuals I work with who want to go into fields that are less common post-MBA recruiting fields, for example. So they're not the consultants, they're not the finance people, they're not CPG. It's really hard to watch other people go through these very structured recruiting pathways and not participate. It's very hard. And then they come to you and they're like, just come to the info session. Like, I know you don't wanna do CPG, but just come and listen, you never know. It doesn't hurt to go, but you need to be the kind of person who can sit through that, hear a very compelling sales pitch about CPG, and still be able to check your own gut as to whether that's what you want to do. Because if you don't stand for yourself, you'll fall for everybody, to paraphrase another saying. And so you have to know how to connect with your own gut and your sense of, is this right for me? If you go to a very expensive time-consuming business school and spend two years trying to do it right according to everyone else instead of according to your own like instinct and gut intuition about yourself, then you have wasted those two years because you didn't really go. Somebody you were pretending to be went. I think that's a really great point. And as I think about the question I just asked in terms of showing up and being able to pursue your own growth. Something that comes to mind for me is that I do think from the fun, fundamental and very elementary understanding I have of mindfulness, that mindfulness actually can play a really helpful role in staying true to that pursuit of your own growth. And so maybe you can do two things in, in terms of maybe talking a little bit about, first off, mindful MBA and, and what it is, but also maybe riffing with me for a second about um, how mindfulness might be able to really guide and 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 help those MBA either applicants or students to pursue that personal growth versus whatever you think everyone else might be doing. Yeah. Oh gosh, those are two really robust questions. I know. We could talk talk about them. But I think that 
I'll, I'll try to briefly summarize the story of Mindful MBA because I think it's, again, an experience that, that helps me be very empathetic to where a lot of the people I work with as both pre-MBAs and MBA students and even alums, the experience that they have sometimes. I don't know, 2008, 2009, I was practicing yoga and mindfulness after work and on the weekends, like lots of people do, working in MBA admissions during the day and not really seeing a connection between the two. And I remember just marinating ideas in my head and thinking what I would love to do is bring mindfulness to MBA students. And at that time, I saw absolutely no path to doing that. And I was sitting inside a business school, but I did not see how I could go from where I was to doing that. But I kept the idea. And then eventually... I I actually did a graduate certificate in health promotion management at American and was able to do some research on mindfulness and professional stress and things like that. And that was very helpful in building my knowledge base, but it still didn't help me figure out how to bring it to MBA students because I'm not a professor, right? I'm not just going to pitch a class and teach it. Probably could have though, even as a staff member, didn't occur to me. So I stay on my path and my path happens to bring me to coaching in 2013 I get to coaching and I still don't see it out. I still don't see it. So then I'm giving a session in late 2013, I want to say, with one of my colleagues at MLT. And we're standing on the stage at Stanford GSB. We're talking to MBA prep fellows in MLT about interviewing, giving tips for interviewing. And we're about to walk out. And I said to my colleague, her name's Krista Giancarlo, I'm going to teach them pranayama. And she looked at me and was like, what is that? What are you talking about? Like, we've been working together for eight years now, but we had known each other for like three months at that point. And she's like, I don't know you and I don't know her. Who's Pranayama? And I was like, I mean, just trust me. And I stood on that stage and we did our slides and everything we were supposed to do. And I taught 90 seconds of deep breathing. And I said, this is something you can do in the waiting room before your interview, right? This is going to calm your nervous system. This is going to slow your heart rate. And this is going to give you greater mental clarity. And if there was video of that moment, I honestly think there would have been like a light above me being like, oh, like she finally got it. We've been banging this into her head for five years. And so even then, it took me two years to start Mindful MBA. So at that point, people started to figure out, oh, you're the mindfulness coach. And so after we spent 59 minutes talking about my essays and my GMAT and my career goals, can we real quick talk about mindfulness? And so eventually I started Mindful MBA in 2015 to do to have the rest of the conversation, right? Here's how you can use it to deal with difficult teammates. Here's how mindfulness makes you better at time management. Here's how mindfulness in really practical ways impacts your life as an MBA student. And from there, because sometimes when we get ourselves in the right place, the universe just takes it and runs. People started saying, hey, could you come into our company and do a session? Could you come into our school and be on a panel? And now It's still a blog. Every few weeks, I put something up there, but there's free guided meditations up there. There are, and I'm coaching not only at organizational levels, but individuals, especially around test prep, but really at any point in the sort of MBA lifespan, it's taken on a life of its own. And it's some of the most satisfying work that I can do, but I know what it feels like to have an idea kind of yelling at you from the inside out. And still being like, I don't know if I can. Why would I do that? Who am I to do that? Being exactly where I needed to be to do it and still feeling like, no, I'm not the one. Until eventually, you can't not. You literally cannot sit with yourself. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. And as someone who has built their own blog for the past six years, that definitely 
resonates with me. I know that a number of people have said this quote before, but it's this idea of people underestimate, people overestimate what they can do in one year, but underestimate what they can do in 10. And it's just the idea that you are incredibly capable of doing so many things. It may not come right away, but if you kind of have a disciplined pursuit or disciplined curiosity to follow a thing that ignites you, you can do ask very big things with it. It just may not necessarily come that moment of, of time, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, just keep coming back to yourself. And this, I think, gets to the second part of your question, Al, which is like, how does this show up in the MBA space? And mm-hmm. yeah. this is challenging as a human, one, as an MBA pursuant, I'll say applicant, student, grad, we tend to be type A, professional, booked and busy, right? All the things like, let's be productive. Let's be growing and having everyone see everything that we're achieving. And mindfulness asks us to stop and go in. And if we're accustomed to being out there all the time, it takes some getting used to. To, to not only do it, but to see the value. And what happens is what you're going to get to know yourself. And I, I can talk more about what that means and why that's useful in an MBA context, because I, I truly think it is. But at a very basic level, it soothes your nervous system. Yeah. Slows your breath, takes you out of fight, flight, or freeze and into rest and digest, which is normal operating mode. The difficult thing about many of us in the MBA space and outside of it living in this day and age is that we spend a whole lot of time in fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah, totally. Sitting in chairs, staring at screens in the physical state that is designed to help us leap tall buildings in a single. And that, as you're probably not surprised to hear, is not good for your body. No. Right. So long-term effects of being in fight, flight, or freeze, basically inflammation in the body, which creates tons of chronic health issues everywhere in your body. So we want to get out of that because it's bad for us physically. We want to get out of it because it feels bad. And we want to get out of it so that we can access our full mental capacity so that we can be more creative, so that we can be more present in our lives to actually appreciate this moment is pretty cool. I'm having a great conversation on a podcast. This is really fun. This isn't just like the thing that's on my calendar at this moment and what's happening next. Be here, be in the conversation, be in the moment. Someone you love is trying to talk to you. Be in the moment when there's a really nice sunrise. It doesn't make you like a crazy hippie to just appreciate what's happening in your life. And I think a lot of us, I talked to one of my MBA grads recently and he was like, I never thought that there would be anything greater for me than getting an MBA. Like it was really climbing a mountain to get there and then getting it. And he's like a couple weeks after graduation. And I'm like, what's next? You know? And on the one hand, like that can be really appealing, right? Like we can get really high off of, and quite literally like what happens in our brains, really high off of achievement. But the issue with that is that achievement is always out there, even if yes. you're in here. Yes. Yes. And it gets old. It, it yeah. gets old. It does. Yeah, sure. And I, I so many things in there that I'd love to unpack, but maybe we'll start with just a couple. Yeah, 100% to what you just said, particularly around achievement. And I think um, 
I think that is such uh, something I hear a lot from students and alum alike, because you're right. Many of us are taught or see growing up that getting an achievement is what helps us be seen as successful or, or what have you. And so we internalize that to, I don't want to project here, but like some of us internalize that to mean, okay, achievement is good. So I am going to get that. Right. And it's no surprise that many students come to business school. And if you look at their past history, it's literally littered with every achievement they could ever, you could ever think of. And partially because they're gifted and they work hard, but also I would also think because they figured out that's how this, uh, they think this is how that it works. And then as being an alum who is five or six years out, I can't tell you how many times I've had the conversation of, so I have this thing that I've worked so hard to get, but now what, or what's next? And the, a lot of the work that I do with them a lot of the times is, is, is embracing that and being like, oh, what a great position to be in, right? To have the ability to ask that question and what a great journey to go on to try to find that answer and to use the skills and talents and privilege you have to go and figure that out. But I can very much empathize as someone who went through this as to the challenge that sometimes that brings or the the emptiness that can it, it can bring or feel. You work so hard to get this achievement and you get there and you're like, okay, so this is really how it Yeah, it's there will never be enough. If you yes, get yes. All of your satisfaction from outside of yourself, then there will never be enough. You will never fill you will never fill the space you're trying to fill for longer than a few minutes. So one other thing where I think maybe I could see mindfulness really playing a role and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. So if we think about perspective or an MBA applicant, as well as an MBA student, both of those journeys have milestones and they also have highs and then lows. And if I think about the the MBA experience itself, right? Like that first quarter or that first two, those first two quarters, that can be a a roller coaster or leading up to the application deadline, right? Like sprinting, sprinting to get your stuff in and making sure your essays and that the resume is perfect. And then you throw it over, you you submit it and then you wait. Yes. (laughs) So there's like these, there's these, just these milestones and there's these things where, and then you hear back, right? You, the closed list you didn't get on or the wait list. Oh, that one's the, one of the toughest ones because that's when you're in the middle of things or the waitlist invitation that you get or not getting an interview or things like that. But there are these just these moments along the way that can, amongst the highs and lows, either shoot you up or shoot you down just with, with a blink of a decision. And I just can't help but think that's something where mindfulness could really play a role. I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. So Yes, throughout the process of being an applicant and being a student, you get lots of great news and some in that. And and I'll offer, like this may get a little bit metaphysical, I don't know, but I'll offer the suggestion that none of those things are actually good or bad. That we decide that's bad news because it's different than what I thought I wanted to have happen. Or that's good news because it's what I wanted or better than what I wanted. But I'll offer the proposal that it's just, and that you don't know if it's good or bad, quote unquote, until some time passes. So someone who applies to five schools and only gets into the school that they're least interested in thinks that this has all gone very badly until maybe they decide I'm going to give it a shot. They start looking more closely at the school that was fifth on their list of five. And they're like, actually, it's okay. And then they go and you talk to them two years later and they're like, I can't imagine my life without this place. 
So was it good news or bad news? When it happened, it felt like bad news, but actually it was good news. And so there's a principle in mindfulness of non-attachment, which is different from ambivalence. You can be super ambitious. You can work really hard. You can have a list of five schools ranked in order of your preference. Of course you can. But then you put that stuff out, you hit submit, and you say, I hope what's best for me is what happens. And you release attachment to the outcomes because you've done your best work on all the different parts of those applications. You've done the work to narrow down to those five schools or seven schools or whatever it is. I hope what comes back is what's best for me. Instead of, I hope what comes back is that I get into all these schools and get a full scholarship at all of them. Because I'll tell you, that's a problem too. <laughs> that sometimes creates more stress than a few yeses and a few no's. So you just say, I hope, I hope whatever happens is what's best for me. And you can apply that to getting into school, getting offers from companies, internships, elections for club leadership and things like that. You can apply it to, to lots of things. So then the results come back and let's say there's some disappointment. Okay, this is where I am right now. I'm not living in, so disappointment is I wish that something different had happened here. And you can spend as much time as you want in that space. Nothing happens there. There's no energy in that space. It's just dead energy of, I wish I got yeses from the schools I got the, that I got no's from. Or you can say, where did I get a yes from? And you decide from there. And that doesn't mean that you get into one school out of five and now you have to go. You can decide, I'm not going to take that offer. I'm going to try again next year. I'm going to try and get promoted at work. I'm going to do something else. But start with where you are right now. That's mindfulness of, okay, I'm feeling disappointment. I wanted to go to school X and they said no, or they put me on the wait list and I don't know what that means. And it's not what I wanted this email to say or my portal page to say or whatever. Okay, I'm gonna let myself feel that is all right. And then it passes. Not like right away, but in dribs and drabs. And it's like, all right, what do I have? I think it doesn't make it easy, Al, but it does make it possible to live through the unexpected and through disappointment. Thank you for sharing that. I think that is such a great reminder in many ways about the the ability for humans to be to to progress and be resilient, you know, in the face of what may seem in any given moment as challenging, but also to keep in mind that it's a journey and you to your point, what may seem in any given moment as uh, you may perceive to be as challenging, negative, or exciting, or positive, over time, it can may mean something something else and to be mindful of that. So one other thing I, I wanted to ask you about, one of the things that strikes me just in terms of talking to you now, but also in researching you and, all, and before jumping on is that you've been able, I think, in my opinion, you seem to have a very integrated life where you have a bunch of different things that are important to you in terms of your um, ability to coach and helps students and applicants get into school, as well as your ability to integrate and work on something like mindfulness and not only work on it and be think about it and write about it, but then to really fully integrate it into your life. And I would just be curious, because you have so many of these different things, like what do you look at as success for yourself? Or how do you think about what success you know means to you? Because I do think, I'd just be curious to know, I always love asking this question, but in particular to someone like yourself, who you do have a bunch of different, we're multifaceted people, but you clearly have a bunch of different facets to your life. And I would just love to know how you think about success for yourself. Wow, that's a really good question. And I don't know if I have just one answer to that, but mm -hmm. I think... 
the further along I get in this work, the more I start to understand something that my therapist has talked to me a lot about. Actually, she's amazing and therapy is awesome. If you think you might need it, go. If you think about help you go. She's talked about, we live in a world right now where everyone's trying to be famous, right? Like we feel like everything we do has to happen on some kind of a big scale. And I've come to realize that I love talking to groups of people. I love having conversations like this with you, Al, whether it was you and me having coffee or we're recording it and a bunch of people might listen to it. That's awesome. I love, I have figured out a few things that I really believe in. And at the root of this, at all of this is my belief in self-inquiry of studying yourself in yoga. It's called Svadhyaya. You study yourself so that you can understand your wiring so that when you move out from inward out, you are doing your best, right? You are moving authentically. You are not fearful to use your gifts. You are not fearful to use your voice. You are not fearful to say no to that which is not for you and to say a big loud yes to that which is for you. That, But I've also realized that it isn't about how loud you are. It's about individual impact. For me, I get so much out of working with individuals one-on-one, working in small groups, and I don't want to lose that. And for me, I'll talk to five people. I'll talk to 5,000 people. I talk. I love talking. It's fine. But to be able to work in a space where I can see someone start to change themselves in a way that feels right to them, when you can actually see that happening, that's success. That to me is success more than, oh, I did something and a million people knew about it. Right. It's that one person that's more important. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. I love that. Shannon, thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. It's really been engaging and exciting. And I think our listeners are going to learn so much from it. If people want to learn more about you or the Mindful MBA, where can they find you? Where should we point them to? Yes, please. This has been so much fun. I would love to continue the conversation with anyone who's interested. My website is themindfulmba.com. I'm on Instagram, all the, the socials, except for TikTok, one step too much for me. And you can also email me. I'm happy to hear from you, Shannon, at themindfulmba.com. Thank you so much. Shannon or Nardemko, everyone. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.